You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Great strides have been made in the treatment of acute coronary syndromes, but how do we as primary care providers cement those gains? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Sean Goodman, Associate Head and Staff Cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto, both in Toronto, Ontario, and Co-Chair of the Canadian Heart Research Centre. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Goodman. Thank you. We have heard a lot about medications that are specific for uh, acute treatment of acute ischemia in the ER and on the way to the cath lab. But there are also medicines we know from the office that are being used earlier in, in this situation. Is that correct? Absolutely. There's been a number of studies over the last several years that have now moved these types of therapies, for example, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, and statins, from an outpatient setting to the management in acute coronary syndromes as well, right up front. Let's take beta blockers. Are, are there situations where they should definitely be used and others where we should avoid those? It's a, an important point because beta blockers are an excellent therapy, but it's important, as with any therapy, to make sure that the setting and the timing is the right timing, to make sure that a good drug isn't necessarily used at the wrong time. And of course, we have to be cautious with uh, agents like beta blockers that we call negative inotropes. They can cause the myocardium to not uh, beat as strongly or as fast. And in the setting of acute myocardial infarction, there may be pros and cons to that particular approach. So we definitely have to individualize therapy. But in patients who come in with a suspected acute coronary syndrome, including myocardial infarction and unstable angina, there's very good data that if they don't have significant bradycardia, hypotension, or heart failure, that Beta blockers can actually save lives acutely, uh, and particularly down the road, but also uh, prevent uh, rhythm disturbances like ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation, and also they're good anti-ischemic agents so they can prevent recurrent ischemia, and they can also significantly reduce the risk of myocardial infarction or a second infarction. So we should probably be seeing our cardiologists using these in less bradycardia, hypotension, or significant heart failure. Absolutely. So they'll be, you'll see that they'll be used uh, acutely, or at least uh, once those situations have been uh, established as not being present or have settled down, and then there's excellent evidence to uh, continue to use a beta blockade, for example, following myocardial infarction. And then I tend to recall ACE inhibitors being started if there appeared to be a large anterior wall infarction. Is, is that still a criteria, or are they used more widely? The evidence uh, that you just mentioned is uh, the strongest evidence is the is in the higher highest risk patients those who have for example anterior wall myocardial infarction those who have congestive heart failure even acutely in the setting of myocardial infarction but there are a number of studies now when you total them all together there's over a hundred thousand patients worth of experience in clinical trials comparing different ACE inhibitors to a placebo or control in just those patients who are coming in with a suspected acute myocardial infarction. And the overall benefit was about five lives saved per thousand patients treated, which is modest, but it was statistically significant and I think an important benefit. So I think, again, with the similar caveats, we don't want to give an ACE inhibitor to somebody who has hypotension, for example. But apart from that, if patients uh, we think will tolerate the therapy, we'll try to start that within the first 24 hours and then, of course, continue it in the long term. And as you mentioned already, those patients who are at highest risk, again, the anterior infarcts, for example, or those patients who already have congestive heart failure, or those who subsequently are identified as having left ventricular systolic dysfunction based on, for example, an echocardiogram, those are the ones that you'll get the biggest bang for your buck, 
and I'm not just talking financially, but of course from a clinical efficacy perspective, those are the patients who will have types of benefits as high as 50 uh, live save per thousand patients treated, so an even bigger bang for the buck. Reading about statins, I, I, I imagine this is some of the pleiotropic or anti-inflammatory effects that statins may have because they're started right away now also, aren't they? Indeed they are. There was a paucity of information in this area up until the last three or four years. Now we have a couple of uh, decent-sized studies that looked at uh, using a statin uh, earlier on. Now, I should point out that we still don't have any good trials that say that you have to start this within the first 24 hours, although that is common practice because there's probably no downside to initiating the therapy. But the trials that looked at this, uh, two trials that I'm thinking about in particular, well, one study waited until 24 hours to make sure that the patient was otherwise stable. The other study started on average five to seven days after the heart attack or after the acute coronary syndrome. One study was a placebo comparison. It was looking at atorvastatin or Lipitor, and again, compared to placebo. The other study was even larger, and it was a head-to-head comparison between atorvastatin and pravastatin. And what was particularly interesting was that pravastatin, of course, is one of the very well-established statin therapies, even post-myocardial infarction, that we know works very well in the long term. But we know that atorvastatin or Lipitor has even a greater LDL or bad cholesterol lowering potential. And so this was really not only a comparison between two different statins, but really more a strategy, one which was trying to get a much more aggressive lowering over time of LDL than the other. Uh, and it was quite surprising, in fact, to see that the atorvastatin, the high-dose atorvastatin, uh, actually beat out the regular dose of pravastatin in reducing cardiovascular events down the road. Now, as you mentioned, some of this benefit, uh, at least acutely, presumably is not due to sudden lowering of LDL. This just doesn't happen uh, that acutely. But it appears that there may be some so-called anti-inflammatory or pleiotropic effects. It's still being hotly debated as to what the mechanism is. But the good news for the patients is that we should really be starting this therapy within the hospitalization, certainly by the time of discharge, if not sooner. And this is therapy that's critical, of course, in its benefit to be maintained probably over the lifetime of these patients. You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Sean Goodman, Associate Head and Staff Cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and we are discussing the care of patients with acute coronary syndromes. Well, Dr. Goodman, you've outlined for us the earlier use of beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, statins, and we know that Plavix has a big role and some of the other antiplatelet medicines, aspirin. Tell us, what what has this done in terms of outcomes? Well, we had an opportunity uh, in a, a global registry of acute coronary events, the acronym is GRACE, to look at the temporal use of these uh, evidence-based therapies and to look at how patients are doing over time. And this is a study that's been going on since 1999. It's an observational study. It's involving 14 countries of the world. There are often somewhere between five to ten institutions or hospitals in each of these countries in different clusters that we've been inviting patients to participate in and to really look at their outcomes over time. And we recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association some of our observations looking at these trends over time. And it's interesting to see that the use of evidence-based therapies that we just talked about, for example, beta blockers, the statins, ACE inhibitors, clopidogrel plavix, the use of those types of therapies has increased over time, uh, often significantly so when one looks from sort of year to year over the course of 1999 all the way up to 2006. 
And at the same time, when we looked at how these patients did both in hospital and during the six-month follow-up period, we observed trends also over time where we saw declines in mortality related to myocardial infarction, declines in the uh, rates of congestive heart failure, pulmonary edema, and really an overall uh, trend towards improvement in the outcomes of these patients. Now, we, of course, are, this is an observational study, and we can't draw any cause and effect conclusions here. All we can say is that what we observed in this international study is that as we see an increase in the use of appropriate therapies, both acutely and in the, in the, over the course of a six-month follow-up, this was associated with a reduction in bad things like myocardial infarction, congestive heart failure, and mortality. And I noticed that there didn't seem to be a big difference in terms of the incidence of stroke. Any comments on that? Probably over time, for a greater period of time than six months, one might uh, see some improvement uh, in the rates of stroke. For example, we know now that statins in several st uh, studies have been associated with lower risk of, of stroke. It may be that the uh, patient population that we're looking at and the relatively short time period of, of six months uh, isn't uh, enough to be able to detect which uh, what is fortunately not a really frequent event, and, and that being stroke in, in the setting of acute coronary syndrome. But this uh, observational study, the GRACE study, is still going on at this point. Absolutely. In fact, we have now offered two sites and patients to follow uh, them out to two years' time. So over the course of the next several years, we'll have some extended follow-up. And we now have over 75,000 patients worldwide enrolled in this prospective registry. So hopefully we'll be able to shed some more insight on that very important cardiovascular event, as you mentioned, stroke. It's also important to realize that uh, we did see increases in rates of cardiac catheterization and revascularization. And this is a topic of great debate, the right balance. We don't want to take everybody to the cath lab, but uh, there are a number of people who do benefit, at least in the short, if not the long term, from undergoing an aggressive risk stratification process that involves detailing their coronary angiography and intervening with percutaneous coronary intervention or coronary artery bypass surgery uh, where appropriate. Of course, as we see an increase in those types of procedures, there is an upfront downside or hit that patients are exposed to, uh, including stroke. So maybe the short term up to six months is just not enough time for us to see an improvement in stroke rates with the types of therapies, medical therapies that we're giving. At the same time, we are seeing uh, an increase in the use of more aggressive interventional strategies, which unfortunately are sometimes associated with a risk, a small risk of stroke. So maybe there's a little balance that's happening that again, with longer term follow up, we might be able to see a net benefit from. Interesting. And notice that you, uh, like when somebody presents to the ER, you mentioned we stratify ST segment elevation versus non ST segment elevation. Your data was presented segregating those groups. Are there any conclusions that can be drawn that would be pertinent to the follow up for the primary care doctor? You get a patient who had the ST segment elevation versus one who did not. Well, I think that once the patient is uh, being discharged and ultimately in their long-term care, in a way, it doesn't matter so much what their initial presentation was. That initial distinction is important for the types of therapies that we might initiate in the first uh, few minutes to hours. But at the end of the day, the reality is, is that this patient's prognosis with an acute coronary syndrome is probably less dependent on their initial presentation over time as it is to how aggressively there is lifestyle modification, the medical therapies that we've started to talk about. There's no question that ST segment elevation MI patients, when they first present to hospital, 
are a higher risk. They've definitely closed off an artery, and they have a higher in-hospital and sort of shorter-term mortality. But the non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction and unstable angina population, they seem to have at least as extensive disease, if not more. And so over the course of time, unfortunately, they sort of catch up to the ST elevation in my patients so that by the time one year or so rolls around, those patients are as at high risk for ongoing events as those patients who originally presented with ST segment elevation MI. So I think for the practicing clinician, it's important that the therapies that the patient goes out of the hospital on and the other things in their lives that we need to have an impact on be as aggressively approached in a patient with or without ST segment elevation MI. I want to thank Dr. Sean Goodman, who has been our guest as we've been discussing some of the newer treatments for acute coronary syndromes and how that has translated into significant reductions in certain adverse cardiac endpoints. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.